Join me, if you will, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're at the very tail end of chapter 4, if you remember from last season. And we'll be beginning in um, in verse 43 of chapter 4. Now I have a confession to make. I have been attempting to find the source of Missouri's state motto, the show me state. Now it seems like there are various possibilities. There's no clear um, source or etiology of this. And... There's a widely known legend that attributes the phrase to Missouri's U.S. Congressman Willard Duncan Van Diver, who served in the United States House of Representatives from 1897 to 1903. And while a member of the House Committee on Naval Affairs, Van Diver attended an 1899 naval banquet in Philadelphia. And in a speech there, he declared, now listen to this, guys. I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence never convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have got to show me. Now, for many of us, seeing is believing. I think many of us have a tendency to be like the Missourians or Missourians or those in misery. To, to be shown, to, to demand to see. I have to see it. Many of us have, have heard politicians give promises. And we have said, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Right, and so we have this tendency for us that we want to see to believe. You have got to show me. I've been tricked so many times, and I've developed a, uh, a habit of saying, show me. And it makes it hard to trust people. And as Christians, I think we wrestle with this, especially when, it call, when we're called to believe things we cannot always see or put our hands on. Yet the book of Hebrews describes faith or belief in this way. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And our passage this morning will make the point that believing is not seeing. As we look at verse 43, and I hope you have your Bibles open to this because you are going to want to not just take my word for it, but listen to the word of the living God. And this is what he says. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. When he went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told them, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told them, your son will live. 
the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that this boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the text this morning, help us to understand what your word is teaching us. Lord, help us to not be like the Jews who had to see to believe, but to truly believe what your word says here this morning. Father, if there is anyone in this room who is struggling to believe what your word says, I pray that you give them supernatural faith, faith that, that comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ and not through necessarily seeing. Father, as we think about this service that we are, are performing this morning, that we are worshiping you through songs, through prayer, through sacrifice, and through the word that we would be an acceptable sacrifice to you. Lord, I pray for myself. Lord, you know that I am weak and that I need you desperately every day and every minute. And so we pray for this. Pray for our ears that we would hear and our eyes that we would see what your word has to show us. And this is your word. And we ask these things in Christ's beautiful name, his precious name, and by the power of the Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. So the whole point of the Gospel of John, if you'll remember, this is kind of like a recap. So if you've ever done series of shows, you know they do like a recap right at the beginning so you can get caught back up. So to get caught back up, we have to remember what is the point of John? The book of John has a point. And John tells us what his point is. In John 20, 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So John has written this book with a purpose. He didn't just take a pen to paper and start writing random thoughts. He says, I have a purpose. Let me collect the information that I have about this Jesus, and I'm going to put it down in such a way that it will help you believe that He is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in his name he wants to convince us one that jesus is the messiah that was promised and that we can believe in him and have eternal life his goal is to show us who jesus truly is and then to lead us to believe in him and so we need to keep this in our mind as we read because i think this will clear up some of the confusion have you ever read matthew mark luke and john and then said why does john seem to have plagiarized the wrong book Right, We see a, a, a lack of continuity between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John has told us that he is not writing this necessarily in a chronological order, but he is writing it in such a way, he's formatting it in such a way that we can believe in Jesus. So he is laying this out in a way that he has taken what we would call creative license, not changing the truth or the reality or the events, but he has ordered them in such a way to point to a superior objective. Um, he is, he's pointing us to a, a theology. 
And so John has collected several interactions. He placed them in a way to show us who Jesus truly is. And so when we look at John, not only is it important to look at the events themselves, but also the ordering of the events. It's important that as we look at John, we're not looking at just the mere data, but we're also looking at the ordering of the data. So there's a reason why we have Cana and then the temple and then John the Baptist and then our message this morning. John wants to show us who Jesus really is. And he opens with that powerful statement from John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then after this, we have the first sign, the water into wine, which confuses us Baptists a lot, doesn't it? And then the cleansing of the temple, which seems out of order, compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we've talked about that before. And then we have Nick at night. Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night. You guys haven't heard that joke before? Okay. Nicodemus comes in the middle of the night, not wanting to be seen, and and he tries to kind of puff Jesus up. But Jesus knows what's in the heart of man, doesn't he? He says, you must be born again. And then we have the Samaritan woman and the village. And that back and forth that is so helpful in evangelizing those who are combative. And in each of these events, the theme is belief and unbelief. John will contrast various levels of belief and he shows this growing hostility from the Jewish leaders and shows that they are blind. And so our text will continue to build on this theme of belief versus unbelief. And as you read through this passage with me, as we study this passage, look at who are believing and who are unbelieving. Faith is not necessarily seeing, but believing. Believing is in the word of the Lord. And then finally, faith will become sight. And so the first thing we see that faith is not necessarily seeing, but believing. Verse 43 begins this tale of two contrasts. Uh, it's sort of a chiasm. There's a, an order to this where we see a believing group and an unbelieving group. And it goes back and forth throughout John. There's this back and forth between a, a believer and a seer, or a seer and a believer. And so first we see believers. Jesus is returning to Galilee. Verse 43 says, After two days, he left there for Galilee. And if you remember last year, Jesus was in the Samaritan village, and so he spent a couple days with them sharing who, about who he was. Remember the interaction with the woman. And so Jesus didn't have to do a miracle. He only had to speak and tell them who he was. And the Samaritans believed based on his own word. And so we have the believers, those in Samaria where he spent those two days, the Samaritans who were the outcasts, if you remember, they were not, uh, the Jews would not consider them clean or part of the family of God. They were considered outcasts. They had bad theology, uh, which was also something Jesus had to correct as he was there. And then before them, we had Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and he seems to miss the point. So you see the back and forth that's happening in John. So Nicodemus misses the point, the Samaritans get the point. The woman at the well eventually comes to believe, and so do the Samaritans. And now Jesus is returning to his hometown. And look at this. This is so interesting. 
Verse 45 says, When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. This seems like a good thing. The, the, the hometown boy has done good in Jerusalem and has come home victorious. And he's a received, he's welcomed. But John seems to indicate that something is not quite right. Because verse 44 says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Literally, his own fatherland, if you read the, the Greek there. There was no signs or wonders done in Samaria, in, in, um, in Samaria, but there was in Jerusalem. And so we have the seers. Why do you think John includes verse 44? Why would he say a prophet has no honor in his hometown, talking about something Jesus had said previously? I mean, is this evidence that Jesus can overcome? Or is it maybe the, the, the fact that the vast majority are going to reject him? And we know, to, we know this, that there were many other miracles that happened, but John is only selecting a few. So it's not like Jesus has not done any other miracles in Cana or in, in Galilee, because Jesus did several miracles according to Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. In fact, it's reiterated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. This welcoming is really like the, the welcoming in John 2.23 or the believing in John 2.23. Let me read to you that passage in case your memory is a little vague since you slept since we talked about this last time. 23 says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So they had to see the signs to believe what Jesus said. Verse 24, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that they were fair-weather friends. He knew that their belief was only skin deep. And so we have this welcoming of the, Gal uh, the Galileans is only skin deep because they were in Jerusalem. They saw the signs that had happened, and they said, this guy is something. He's like the quarterback that comes back for the homecoming parade. And they'd believe him based on his signs. They welcomed him because he was doing amazing things. And they had gone to the festival in Jerusalem where he had cleared the temple. Word had spread about Jesus. But this welcoming is only shallow. And John writes how shallow this really is. He points to have the shallowness of it because they had seen what he had done. Faith is illustrated here as those who believe because they trusted in Jesus because of what he says, compared to those who superficially believe because they see something happening. How often do you find yourself at this crossroads in your own life? I know God says to do this, but I really want to do this. Or God says, if I do this, I have been doing it, but the results are not there how much longer how many people give up because they've been waiting a long time for the lord to do what he promises in the word am i the only one that experiences that 
that kind of confusion, that kind of questioning. Maybe I think God, first I want to see you act in this area, then I'll join in. I want to see the miracle first, and then I'm going to go ahead and believe. Do you ever have that experience, the show me state mentality? Of all the promises in Scripture, I think Romans 8, 28 through 29 is the one that, that reoccurs the most in, in a lot of my counseling relationships and a lot of my interactions with people. Romans 8, 28 through 29 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And a lot of people will put that on a coffee mug, they'll run out and, and celebrate how wonderful that is, but they don't listen to the whole passage which says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's hard to think about. Like all these things are not good as I define it, but good as God defines it. And so that good is my conformity to Christ. If that means the loss of a loved one will conform me more to Christ. If that means I'm going to have to suffer a great trial to be conformed to Christ, that is working for my good. That's a hard thing to trust when it happens to you. I know that this trial will work together for my good so that I will be conformed to the image of Jesus, but Lord, waiting is hard. That's my inner dialogue. Lord, it's hard to wait. Trials are hard. I wish... I was there already. How many of you going through a trial are like, okay, I know this is good. I know you have a purpose. I know waiting for this thing is, is, is part of the plan. But can I just snap my fingers and have it done? <laughs> From John, we see that faith is not necessarily seeing first, but believing. A crisis is often what is often the means that the Lord uses to determine true faith. True faith is not usually seen when everything is going well, when you have no problems, when life is unicorns and rainbows. It's a crisis that has to happen. And what, that's what we see next. Faith is believing the word of the Lord. In verses 46 through 50, a crisis has arisen. The royal official has a sick son. And it becomes an illustration of believing faith. 46 says, He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. Jesus goes to Cana, the scene of the wedding miracle. And then we hear about this official's son, this royal official who had an ill son. Think about this for a minute. The royal official probably belongs to the Herodian government. He's probably somewhere in the hierarchy of the government. He's in Capernaum, which is about 20 miles from Cana. And he's there. He's a, he's a ruler. He's a rich guy. He has political power, but he cannot heal his son. All his power, all his wealth could not heal his ill son. Think about that for a minute. Is there anything you wouldn't do for your own child? Is there anyone in this room who would not go to the ends of the earth for their own child? 
I can't imagine a thing that I wouldn't do for one of my children. And as we think about that, this man's wealth and this man's money, excuse me, that's the same thing. This man's money and this man's power could do nothing to solve this problem. And we begin to learn a little bit about his character in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come to Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. This is like the president of the United States going to a lowly carpenter on his own. He's not sending Air Force One to pick him up. He's going himself. He's not sending his slaves or his servants to do it for him. He is going 20 miles, probably by horseback, traveling to find this Jesus, this carpenter's son, and pleading with him. If you know anything about someone in power, pleading is typically not a symptom of their office. He is pleading. In fact, the, the Greek language here says he pleads. It's continually. He's, he's begging Jesus to come and heal his son. He's in a desperate situation. And is not death the great equalizer? doesn't matter how rich you are, how powerful you are, death comes to us all. And, and John Donne in his poem, Death Be Not Proud. There's no pride in death. Feeling helpless, this royal man who's used to people doing whatever he says. When he snaps his fingers, he gets what he wants. But he cannot make Jesus do anything. In fact, he goes to him and he begs him. He pleads before him. This desperate situation with his ill son. I mean, just imagine for a minute. I mean, I can't, I can't believe that this, this illness was a, a short-term thing. But this son has a fever that's not leaving, that's bringing him to the edge of death. And he has probably sent for every doctor. He has probably sent for every um, priest and prophet, anybody he can that could do something for his son. And now he has to go to Christ. This desperate situation launched him to seek Jesus. It was the wisest thing that he could do, is to run to Jesus. We can learn something here. We need to go to Jesus. Many times it takes a crisis before we seek Jesus, doesn't it? How many of you have seen it over and over again? Until there's a crisis, you don't change. Sometimes it takes a child's rebellion to get your attention. Sometimes your child's continual rebelling makes you realize and take stock of your life. What has been a priority to you may not have been so good for your child. God uses our children to bring us to Christ. How often do we see that gap in believers who spend their childhood in church then they go off to college, they go off and do some young adult things, and it's not until they have kids that they come back into the church building. It's not until children bring their parents back to Christ. Self-confident men who have no time for Christ, men and women who have no time for Christ until there's a crisis, until the Lord takes whatever you've been trusting, whatever you've been putting your hope in, 
until he removes it completely, you will not run to Christ. This ruler epitomizes that. He has everything he needs. He's self-confident. He has no time for Christ. He's not spending his days pursuing and following Christ around like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, What's, what must I do to get eternal life? This rich royal, he doesn't have time for Jesus until now. Until he learns that he is not in control. We as Americans, we have everything at our fingertips, don't we? We have microwave ovens, which are so amazing. We don't have to wait long times to make meals. Uh, it's quick, it's fast, and we want things our way, and we want them in a hurry. If you have to wait for five minutes at the drive-thru, you get a little antsy because these things ought not to be so, right? And so in our speedy life, we don't get disappointment often. And when we do get disappointment, it's a big deal. A lot of us are too busy for Jesus. A lot of us are too busy to come to Christ. Verse 48, Jesus replies to this begging man, this royal comes to him 20 miles. Man, this would be a big boon to Jesus' ministry, wouldn't it? Man, I got people, I got political connections now. I healed this man's son. Man, I'm going to start living in a royal palace rather than walking around with these dirty sandals. 48, we see Jesus' response. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Every evangelist that I know of would probably try to be pulling Jesus aside and say, whoa, whoa, Jesus, what are you saying here? Jesus' response is a revealing statement. Jesus seems to be illustrating the contrast once again. Uh, it, we can tell this by the way he plurally addresses the whole generation of people. As you look at it, he says, unless you people, it's a, a, it's a plural. He's not talking directly to the the royal anymore. He's talking to the whole generation of Jews that are there. And he says, unless all y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's addressing the community. He said it's an indictment against them. He says the reason is the hardness of your hearts, your total inability, the bondage of your will. And Jesus' hesita hesitation only strengthens the official's pleading. This is what tells me there's a difference between the Galileans and this royal. Look at the next line, 49. Sir or Lord, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. That gives me goosebumps. He's, he wasn't dissuaded by Jesus' rejection of him. He says, sir, come down before my boy dies. When he says come down, he means come down geographically, right? Because Capernaum is north of Cana. He says, come down from this hill and come to, to, to my, my home and, and heal my boy before he dies. More pleading. The desperate ruler he calls him Lord, literally, to come down before the boy dies. He's begging Jesus to come and heal his son. He's, he's not arguing with Jesus. He doesn't 
come up with some good argument or offer him money or power. He just begs. Come and do to him what you have done to others. And from this little verse, we see that his son is in a really desperate state. His son has an incurable illness. He's about to die. And he doesn't have time to dilly-dally. How many of you would respond the way that this royal ruler is responding, this official? Verse 50, we have the word of the Lord. Jesus says, go. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Jesus commands him to go. Jesus tells the desperate man that his son will live. In an example to all of us, the ruler believes his word. Literally in the Greek it says, the man believed the word that Jesus said. Logos is mentioned again. Just like we talked about in John 1. 1, we have here again, this man believed the word of Jesus. The ruler believes the word and departs. I don't know about you, but I would have questions. Jesus tells me to go. My son is healed. I'd say, okay, well, are you coming with me? Because let's just have some insurance here, God. Just come along, please, with me. What if I go 20 miles home and my son is sick, still, or worse, dead? I don't know if I could just believe the word of Jesus. I would say, okay, I, I, I believe you, but you need to come with me. The crisis of the ruler is his sick son. God has humbled this man with his circumstances, and this humbling led him to the one person who could truly help. The crisis the ruler had interrupted all of his plans. You know, God will often let us get to the end of ourselves until we have tried every other hope and found them wanting. God will often wait until we make a big mess of things. You might be doing that today. Maybe you are pursuing comfort and hope in everything else instead of humbling yourself and pursuing Christ alone. It may even require a continued pursuit like the royal official who had to ask repeatedly. And when he did get an answer, he had to believe the word of the Lord. Which brings us to a principle. And I find this over and over again in Scripture, and I find it over and over again in life. You may want to write this down. I worked really super hard on this. All right. Right believing leads to right thinking, which leads to right doing, which leads to right feelings. Right believing leads to right thinking, which leads to right doing, which leads to right feelings. This often plays out in, in counseling and honestly in my own life, but I have to go the reverse direction. 
So if I know the pattern that right believing leads to right thinking, which leads to right doing, which leads to right feelings, sometimes someone will come in saying, I feel sad. And I ask them, well, what are you doing? And most often, what are they going to say? Nothing. I feel sad. I'm too sad. And so then my next question is, well, what are you thinking about? Well, I'm sad. I cannot get all the chores done. And really, it's not fair that I have to do all these chores. So now we see that we need to change what they are believing. Who am I serving when I'm doing these chores? Does God know how much time you need for the chores? If you do the best that you can because you believe God's word when it says in Ephesians 6, 7, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, then you will begin to feel the way you're supposed to feel. So the epistles often give us this principle by starting with the indicatives and then moving to the imperatives. It gives us who we are in Christ, what we should be believing, and then tells us what to do. And we have the same principle in, the, in our lives. So if you ever want to get to the bottom of your feelings, trace it back to what you are believing. If you ever want to know why you feel the way you do, go back to what you are believing. When someone cuts me off in traffic and I get angry, often I have to go back to understand what do I believe. Well, I believe that people should respect my space as I drive down the road. And they don't believe that. So this is what John is getting at here. Faith starts with believing and believing in what God's word says. And interestingly enough, that is what the serpent in the Garden of Eden attacked. Did, it, did he not? What was the first question that he really liked to ask? Did God really say? I can imagine that, that royal ruler walking back towards his home or riding the horse back to his home thinking, did Jesus really say my son will live? Maybe I need to go back and double check. Maybe I should have written that down. But what we see is that because of this believing, faith will eventually become sight. Faith will become sight. In verse 51 through 54, we see this reality. For the royal official, we see how faith becomes sight. We are never given a promise that we will see um, the results of. That doesn't make any sense. I did not write that logically. We don't always see the results of our faith. But often, we get glimpses. We get glimpses of what it looks like. And this is a great mercy. This is a mercy. The, the Lord does not owe us an explanation for the suffering that we go through. He has no need to tell us exactly why you struggle with the, the sin that you struggle with. But sometimes he gives us a glimpse, and that's a great mercy. And so John gives us a behind-the-curtain view of what happens when the royal official leaves. First, he travels home. Verse 51, while he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. Sometimes it's fun to, to read between the lines to see what's the unspoken here. Imagine those servants and their shock at seeing this ruler alone without Jesus. 
The carpenter's son told you no? Why would he be alone? But not only that, but he's not probably not distraught in the same way. His wealth, he was probably a well-regarded man, and that the unthinkable happened. He was refused by a carpenter's son. But his, son, his servants quickly tell him the news. His son is alive. And so he asked them what happened. Verse 52, he asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The seventh hour or 1 p.m. the previous day, the, the fever had left his son. As he hears this, he begins to realize that this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him his son was going to live. Look at verse 53. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. He did the math. He put it together. And he realized that his son came back to life, if you want to use that language, the moment Jesus spoke. Jesus' power was not bound to a geographic location, which is important as we continue through John to, to, to understand this Jesus, that he was not bound to geography. He didn't have to heal in the same way uh, or in the same place. But what I think is so interesting, and I'm going to nerd out with you guys again, is the language that he is using here. Verse 53, it says, So he himself believed along with his whole household. In the very beginning of 53, the father realized, or literally, the father knew. The word that John uses for know is gnosko, instead of oida, which is more an intellectual knowing. He uses a intimate knowledge, a experiential knowledge of who God is here. It is from personal experience. So John intentionally uses this word that carries the meaning of knowing. And then verse 53 says, He himself believed in his whole household. Hearing about his son's recovery confirmed his belief in Jesus. And then this seeing was the result of the previous believing that he had experienced by believing Jesus' word. And not only that, but now the slaves and the whole household also believe. You can imagine the continual retelling at family gatherings. How many of you have an uncle who tells the same story every gathering? I can imagine that this royal official would tell the story of the day the carpenter's son healed his child. And then 54 gives us a quick commentary this is the second sign that john is highlighting here it says now this was also the second sign jesus performed after he came from judea to galilee so to summarize i think we can say this our passage gives us an illustration of faith and that illustration has three parts one it is not necessarily seeing first but believing first faith is believing the word of the lord Faith will become sight. I do 
do not understand how I got so loud so quickly. God often uses circumstances, pain, and trials to remove anything that will interfere with us coming to Him humbly. And even when we do not come to Him, excuse me, even when we do come to Him, we must trust in what His Word says. By believing or trusting or clinging or resting on His Word, we often get to see the result of that faith. Our faith becomes sight. Jesus calls us to come to Him, to place our sin and our shame on His shoulders, and His perfect righteousness is placed on ours. He is the atonement for our sins. He truly is our solid rock. The lyrics to this final song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, speaks this truth to us. In verse 3, it says, Not earth, nor hell, nor my soul can move. I rest upon unchanging love. I trust His righteous character, His counsel, promise, and His power. And then the chorus, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, seeing is not believing. John 20, 29 says, Jesus tells them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believed. Father, as we leave this place, help us to remember that we walk by faith, not by sight. That our faith is often obscured. That we are usually unable to see what you are doing. But we can trust in your character, in your goodness, in your power, your promises. That we can trust in the character of Jesus who calls to his people and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father, as we continue this series on John, I just want to dedicate it to you. I want to dedicate this series through John as a sacrifice from us that we are offering up to you, that we are uh, opening your word in thankfulness for what you have done through Jesus Christ. Help us to grow deeper in our understanding of Christ. May that understanding of Jesus change us, transform us, and bring us into a new and glorious hope. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.